I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, the text that Jenny read for us this morning at the uh, beginning of our worship. If you'd like to um, avoid embarrassment, don't uh, hesitate to open your table of contents to find your way to Jonah. In the first service, I said it's in between Obadiah and Micah, and everybody said, yes, some help. Um, But you... (laughs) If you want to use the church Bible in front of you, you'll find our reading on page 774, Jonah chapter 1. Uh, before we begin, I want to covenant with you that I will avoid all dad jokes as it relates to the book of Jonah. There will be no whale of a tale or a fishy story coming from this pulpit. Uh, you can be assured. We've taken as our sort of main idea for this great Old Testament book, Uh, the phrase that we find in chapter 2, verse 10, uh, verse 9 rather, where Jonah proclaims salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is God's idea. The dispensing of salvation is God's prerogative. He is entirely, utterly in control and sovereign as it comes to all things, not least of which salvation. Somebody says, I don't like that. I'd like to invite you to consider the alternative, and then you'll join me back in the camp that God is absolutely in control, otherwise He's out of control, which is not anything that anybody who believes on the name of Jesus would like to affirm. Jonah chapter 1, 1 to 16. Before we dive in, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your kindness to us in Christ. We thank You that You have given us Your Word so that we might know You, that You have given us Your Spirit, so that we might know and interpret Your Word correctly and then live in light of it. We thank You for the message of this great Old Testament book, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And we pray that as a church body, You would make us a group of people who loves to proclaim Your salvation. And in order for that to happen, we understand that You must make us individuals who love to proclaim your salvation. Individuals who have experienced deeply what it means to be shown mercy, and then to in turn proclaim that to others. So Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would be with us, that you would change us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you've seen it. The camera begins to sort of focus in on an older yet handsome gentleman, graying hair, very intense look on his face, and he's listening to a recording. And through the speakers, you hear these words. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to get the document and bring Anniker Koska to safety. And as always, should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds doesn't really matter what generation you're a part of. Maybe you grew up watching the old Mission Impossible television program or more recently have seen the films, but that sequence sort of establishes a trope that exists in all of the Mission Impossible stories. This briefing tells us that the stakes of the mission that this individual is being called to are high. Capture or death may result. The information is classified. If captured, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of the mission. And the involvement, understand this, is optional. This is your mission 
should you choose to accept it. I think if we were making a movie about the book of Jonah, it would begin in similar fashion. A man with a very intense look on his face receiving a mission. There is a lot of similarity here. The stakes are high in the book of Jonah. The glory of God and the good of mankind is at stake. The information, according to Jonah's preference, would be best kept classified. Who wants anyone to know that I am a missionary to Nineveh? But the very strong difference in the book of Jonah is that the involvement is anything but optional. There is no, this is your mission, should you choose to accept it. All throughout the Old Testament revelation, the mission of God, and the New Testament for that matter, is the mission of God's people. Those two things are absolutely bound up together. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a member of the covenant community, is to be a man or a woman who embraces, takes for ourselves the mission of God as our mission. That's the story of the book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is His desire for all of the nations to come to know Him in truth and in power. And there is no right for anyone to begin to have this subtle notion that God is best kept to ourselves because after all, we are the ones, thank you very much, who deserve Him. Jonah chapter 1 hits the church like a freight train in the shocking statement that the Lord is a God of mercy who dispenses that mercy to any and all who turn to Him and fear Him. Underline any and all. One of the major questions that the book of Jonah is seeking to answer is, is God the God of Israel only? Or is He the God of heaven and earth? The God of all nations? See, God's heart for the Gentiles does not originate in the New Testament. It's as old as the covenant with Abraham. And anytime we come into a funk in which we are focused in on ourselves rather than moving out into the world on mission, we've gone far afoul of God's heart for the world. Jonah chapter 1. God is a God of mercy and compassion. And He dispenses this mercy to any and to all who fear Him. Now this text makes that message so profoundly clear because it is a topsy-turvy kind of text in which if you'd like the villain of the story is a faithful Jewish boy and those who at the end of the chapter find themselves right with God are pagan sailors salvation belongs to the Lord now if you look at the passage in front of you You'll be able to divide, sort of, if you'd like, the story into two acts or two grand scenes. In verses 1 to 3, we have Jonah who flees from the Lord. 
And then in verses 4, all the way through verse 16, we have the mariners who fear the Lord. There is fleeing on the one hand, and there's fearing on the next. And this is what helps us to make sense of this message of God's mercy. I want to draw your attention first to Jonah fleeing from the Lord. Jonah flees from the Lord. Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go up to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So here in these very first two verses, we have all of the key players for the entire book of Jonah. We have Jonah himself, we have the Lord, and we have Nineveh. Now, at this point, we don't know much about Jonah. In fact, all that we know about Jonah, given the rest of the Old Testament witness to him, is that he is a prophet. 2 Kings chapter 14 and 25, we're told of King Jeroboam that he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. If Jonah is nothing else in the Bible, he is a prophet, which means very simply, Jonah's resume reads as follows, I am to preach the Word of God to the people of God. That's what I do. That's what I'm known for. That's what I did in the days of King Jeroboam, and that's what I'm called to do, it seems at least at first blush, at the beginning of the book that bears my name. Now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah loves being a prophet. It's wonderful. He gets to proclaim the expansion of Israel's borders to an Israelite king. That's an easy message, a popular message to preach. But in the instant action of Jonah chapter 1, we realize that something very different is happening here because the call is, arise and go to Nineveh. Now for Jonah, and for any Jewish thinker, Nineveh represents terror. There are accounts historically about how wicked Nineveh was. It lies, uh, or would have been, just opposite of Mosul in modern-day Iraq. They were known for their war crimes. They're the type of people that we would label in our day and age terrorists. Accounts of amputations and burnings. Some suggest that when they would capture prisoners, they would rip the lips off of their faces. They were wicked people. If you'd like a sort of understated explanation of their terror, Nahum chapter 3, verse 19, this is after the book of Jonah, God pronounces judgment upon them, and He says, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. This is the kind of nation that all the other nations applaud when they are judged. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? So here we have Jonah, the prophet of God, and suddenly his resume has changed. His resume is now, I am to preach the word of God to the enemies of God. And this is just far more than Jonah can bear. So he flees. Now there's a play on the language in these first three verses that you might not catch immediately. First of all, God tells Jonah, verse 2, arise, 
But the action that Jonah takes is that he goes down. Arise, Jonah. But he went down to Joppa. And then when he found a ship, he went down into it. What's more, God tells Jonah to go west, young man, where Nineveh is. But instead, he heads in the exact opposite direction to Tarshish. He goes east. And what we're meant to understand by all of this is that Jonah is so upset by the call upon his life by God Almighty that he flees not simply from the place of God's appointing, he not only seeks to run from God's place, he literally, according to the Hebrew, is attempting to run from God's face. Running from the presence of the Lord. Now, he should have known from David in reading the Psalms, where can I go from your spirit? Where may I flee from your presence? There's nowhere that anyone can run from the Lord, let alone one of God's prophets. But nevertheless, he flees, moving to Tarshish instead of Nineveh. And the question I want to ask of you and of me for a moment is why? Why? You know, we could do a lot of psychologizing, as is popular, about characters in the Old Testament and try and discern their secret motives and their thoughts from afar. Why does Jonah flee? But I think the answer is simply because he's heard the Word of God and he absolutely despises it. You know, I say all the time, we know God through His Word. We come to know what God is like by what He says. And sometimes what God says is rather surprising. I was thinking uh, of uh, this documentary I once watched about Mike Tyson. Some of you might be too young to have ever seen Mike Tyson fight, but no one really fought Mike Tyson as much as they were knocked out by Mike Tyson in the first round, in the first 10 seconds. He was an absolute bruiser. And Mike Tyson, through a series of, of sins and bad choices that he made, ended up in prison. One of the first people that he requested to come and visit him in prison was Maya Angelou. So here we have this juxtaposition. We have this prize fighter, huge, vicious brawler, and a world-renowned and celebrated poet. Maya Angelou, understandably um, fright fearful about going to the prison and, and meeting with Mike Tyson, not having any idea what in the world Tyson could want with her company. And as she goes in to see Tyson, they bring him in. The first thing that he says to her, the first question that he asks her is, Miss Angelou, how would you describe the Afrocentricity of a writer like Cones as it relates to the Eurocentricity of a writer like Tolstoy? Now that's different. That is not what you would expect to come out of the mouth of Mike Tyson. And the point is, is that his question reveals something about him that we would otherwise never have known. I mean, it's rather literate. He's not only reading, he's analyzing, he's, he's comparing. He's thinking about worldviews, he's bright. Absolutely floored Maya Angelou. And here, as God says to Jonah, go and call out against Nineveh, for their evil has come up before me, it reveals to Jonah something about God that he wants nothing to do with. On the surface of it, it seems as though this message is a message of judgment, yeah? Cry out against it, it's evil has come up against me, or to me. 
But Jonah, apart from our psychologizing, he tells us in chapter 4, in verse 2, he tells the Lord, as a matter of fact, exactly why he runs. Now this is best left until we get to chapter 4, but given that it won't be for uh, three weeks now, look with me at chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah prays to the Lord, and he says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew that to be true of you. You're gracious, you're compassionate. This is the great confession of faith for an Old Testament believer. This is the glory of the Lord as He appears to Moses in Exodus 33 and He proclaims His name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, by no means clearing the innocent, or the guilty rather. He is a God of glory and compassion and mercy, etc. Jonah quite likes that when it has to do with Israel, but when we're talking Nineveh, well, Jonah's attitude is the friend of my enemy is my enemy. So make no mistake, when the real God shows up and shows His character to Jonah, Jonah runs as far as he possibly can. Now there is a huge disconnect here between what he understands and the way that he lives. That's why we're on about all the time experiential theology. It's not simply enough to fill our heads with knowledge. We must love this God whom we're learning of. We must love Him in His glory and His compassion for all of the nations. We must adopt His mission to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, even when it's Nineveh, bow before His throne. Jonah flees. But the mariners, they fear. Now, I love how beautifully written, it's, it's, it's almost magical how well-written Jonah 1 is. I want you to follow with me on this, this understanding that Jonah's his running has everything to do with my God is the God of Israel. The nations are on their own. And in his running, he does the very thing that he's attempting not to do. He proclaims the Lord's mercy and compassion to the nations and the, the, the people of the, the mariners. There is a, an evolution of their fear in the text. Verse 5, the mariners were afraid. Afraid of what? They're afraid of a storm. Then, in verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? They're exceedingly afraid. What are they exceedingly afraid of? They're exceedingly afraid of the discipline, the judgment that's falling upon Jonah and now endangers them. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. So we're ratcheting up every single time. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You know what's fascinating there is that comes once the storm passes. Once all external factors of fear are gone, they experience the greatest, most everlasting kind of fear a human man or woman can ever experience. They fear the Lord. Jonah flees and says, I will not proclaim your mercy to the Gentiles. And God says, well, here comes a storm. 
Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. That's the language of a person throwing a javelin. It's the kind of language that you might hear this afternoon as a commentator says, boy, he threw a dart with pinpoint accuracy. Loved ones, God is sovereign. He's in control of everything, even nature. And so he hurls, he throws, he throws a dart of a storm, of a great wind upon the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And in verse 5, we're told the mariners were afraid. Follow me here for a moment. This was not the maiden voyage for these men. This could not be within reason the first time they experienced a storm. But there was something different about this storm. There was something so intense, so fearful about the storm that the ship that they were on threatened to break up and the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. You see where they begin? They begin with the mentality there's a multiplicity of gods. Choose your God. Let's just start throwing gods against the wall and see if one sticks. Everyone call out to your God. There's no answer. Not surprising. There's no answer. So the solution as human beings always come up with, is to take matters into our own hands. If our gods won't hear us, then we'll lighten the ship. They begin to throw cargo over the side to try and lighten the ship to keep waves from crashing into the sea. And what's Jonah doing? Well, he's not singing, you call me out upon the waters. He's not saying, I will praise you in the storm. He is fast asleep. He's knocked out. He's so far gone, so far down, so insensitive to the things of God that he sleeps through the discipline that's been directed squarely at him. And so the captain calls him, get up, you sleeper. What are you doing? Cry out to your God. Maybe that God will spare us. Maybe there's something to the God that you worship that will solve our problem for us. I love the way that Elizabeth Actemeyer comments on this. She says that the captain is hoping to locate at least one God who has the power to say to the storm, peace, be still. Is there a God that exists who can say to the storm, peace, be still? And if there is, I'd like to know Him. Frantic, chaotic, they fear the storm itself. Secondly, they fear the consequences of Jonah's sin. Verse 7, they begin to conspire with one another. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots. That's to say, they basically rolled dice. Proverbs 16.33, again, showing us the breathtaking sovereignty of God, tells us that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. He's in control, not only of the wind and the waves, he's in control of things that we think of being so inconsequential as the casting of lots, the rolling of, of die. And God in His sovereignty with His sights set squarely on Jonah reveals Jonah to be the culprit. Verse 8, they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? He says, well, I'm a prophet of God. I preach the Word of God to the people of God. Sometimes I'm called to preach to the enemies of God, so I've run. Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. They must have thought, if you fear the Lord, you have an awfully funny way of showing it. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea. This is all His and the dry land. He's in control of it all. And then the men were exceedingly afraid. And you know what they say? 
They say to Jonah the precise thing that the Lord says to Eve in the garden. What is this thing that you have done? Highlighting how absolutely ridiculous sin is. I like the way that Tim Keller describes it. He says, sin is suicidal. What is this that, what are you doing? What were you thinking? And understand that it is the pagans here chiding the church for a lack of holiness and reverence before God Almighty. What is this thing that you've done? It was fine that you wanted to flee from the Lord as sinful and suicidal as that is. Why would you bring us into it? You've endangered our lives. What have you done? We're all going to die out here at sea. They were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. I don't know if you've ever had that experience as I've had of being asleep in the middle of the night, and you're, you're sort of shaken. You're awakened by boom, thunder blaring outside of your window, and you sort of sit up, and you're heart's pounding, you're startled and, and all the rest, and you think to yourself in a moment of spiritual sensitivity that's heightened in that moment, and you think to yourself, oh, the awesome power and majesty of God Almighty. This past week, I, I just did a, a wedding of a young man and a young woman. The boy had come here from Haiti and his testimony of faith in Christ is such that he, he said back in 2010 when the massive earthquake hit Haiti, he watched friends of his die. He saw the awesome and the terrible power and majesty and glory of God Almighty. And he said before the Lord, I am a sinner before your holiness. If I have any hope, it is to be found in Jesus. And so Lord, forgive me and accept me as your own, and he came to faith, he was converted. And I want you to see here that the mariners, they not only are awakened by a sense of the power and the might and the majesty of God, they're, they're awakened to a sense of his holiness. This is a God that does not simply tolerate sin. This is a God who hurls storms at prophets who run from him. So friends, understand this. It is the discipline that falls upon the prophet of God that highlights God's goodness, vindicates his holiness, shows his power and beauty and authority. And so once everything is found out, they say to him, verse 11, what shall we do to you? They begin to fear the Lord Himself that the sea may quiet down for us. The sea's growing more and more tempestuous as the text tells us. And Jonah, who knows what his motivation is, says, pick me up and throw me out of the boat. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. Jonah thought nothing of their lives. And they think the world of his. The language is of somebody digging a shovel into the ground, almost frantically digging for gold. They row harder and harder and harder, and in all of their efforts, the sea gets more and more tempestuous against them. 
See, if you're here this morning and you find yourself awakened to the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God, if anything the mariners teach you, it's this, that none of your human efforts will ever appease God Almighty. Nothing that you do, no matter how hard you row, no matter how hard you try, you will never escape. The sea only grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, we're going to throw your boy overboard. Don't hold it against us, for you have done as it pleased you. Do you understand this? It pleased the Lord. Pleased Him. This was His delight, His pleasure. When His prophet couldn't bear who God really is, it pleased the Lord to send a storm to bring the waves, to reveal Jonah through the casting of the lots, and ultimately to use these fishermen as an instrument of his judgment, his discipline upon his sinful prophet by throwing him over the edge. It pleased you. Don't hold this against us. This is your pleasure. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men, here we are, feared the Lord exceedingly. The greatest fear, the most important fear, we're told comes when all of the external terrifying circumstances have ceased. They're more frightened when the waters are calm than they are when they're tempestuous. Because now they fear the Lord. They've come to see not only His power, His authority, His glory, His majesty, they've come to see His mercy. And this might sound counterintuitive, but nothing is more terrifying than God's mercy. What does it mean to fear the Lord, Charles Bridges? It is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's law. God's wrath, that is His discipline, is so bitter and His love so sweet that we have this earnest desire to please Him and to fear Him so that we will not sin against Him. They turn to Him, oh Lord, have mercy on us. Don't hold this against us. And now they fear Him. In light of Your mercy, in light of Your kindness to me, I now have a reverent awe for you as a father. Such that the last thing that I ever want to hear is, you know I'm going to tell your father when he comes home. Did you view your fathers like that? They fear him. Because they love him. And they've experienced his mercy. Now there's a lot of silly nonsense being spewed right now about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. One very popular writer would tell you that the Old Testament God is equivalent to the pagan gods of his time, essentially a human rights violator. That the God of the Old Testament is one way, and there's a new God in the New Testament who's entirely different. Let's just dispel that nonsense right now. Mark chapter 4, 35 to 39. Tell me how familiar this sounds. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him and with them in the boat, just as he, uh, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. 
And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. You have a great storm. You have the prophet asleep below. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The same God who hurls the storm on Jonah's ship is the God who in the person of His Son enfleshes Himself and comes and sleeps within the bottom of a boat only to be awakened during a storm to display His power, His glory, His authority, His majesty by saying with a word, peace, be still. And the reaction from the fishermen turned disciples is who in the world have we got on our hands now? Who is this? I've never seen anybody like this. I don't even have a category for this man. Because when the Lord is the prophet, He has the power and authority to calm all the storms, but then the compassion, the ownership, the prerogative in salvation to rather than run from the call of God upon his life, to set his face like flint to Jerusalem. To lay down his life for the nations. So that no matter who you are this morning, I don't care if you're a, 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 a sailor, I don't care if you're, you've been at First Baptist Church for ages, no matter who you are, you might... See His glory today as He dies on a cross and bow before His utter majesty and confess for yourself salvation belongs to the Lord. Our God is a God of all the nations. He dispenses His mercy on all whom He chooses. So turn to Him. And then fear Him. C.S. Lewis says of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, he is not safe. You remember that? Lucy looks at Aslan, she says, is he safe? And the answer she gets, no, don't be ridiculous. He's not safe, but he's good. He's good. He's a good and gracious king, the God of all nations. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we marvel at the richness of Your Word. What appears at first blush to be 
just a story of being lost at sea is actually the story of your pursuing compassion for all the nations. Or we confess so often we get this wrong. We tend to keep you to ourselves. We pray that you'd help us to proclaim you among the nations. We pray for each and every one here this morning that as we've heard of your power and glory and of your mercy in Christ, the way that you came down in the person of your Son to pay the debt that we owe so that salvation could be realized. Pray for each one of us that we would confess our sin before you. That we would turn in faith and trust to you. And we would fear you, not the fear of judgment, but the fear of dishonoring our great and awesome sovereign King. So Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.